Hello and Hare Krishna. Welcome to this Chasing Reality podcast with me, Ryan, aka Ramananda Das. Today we have a very esteemed guest with us, Professor Michael Ruse, originally from the UK in Bristol, uh, lived in Canada for some years and has been based for some time uh, in Florida, Florida State University. He is a philosopher, historian and philosopher of biology, has written many of the textbooks, articles, prolific writer, many popular and scholarly books. Um, the reason I'm particularly interested in speaking to him is because he seems to be striving for balance. Um, he's very interested in this demarcation. Where does science begin and end? And where do metaphysical um, ways of approaching things come in? And so I like the fact that he's, he looks like he's he's really aiming for this balance. And that's something that particularly attracts me as well. Um, and I think it's very important in, in scholarship to, to be able to do that. And I'd like to learn some more. So please stay tuned. Thank you, Michael, for joining me today. Um, I, I understand that you've been, um, you've been in research for over 50 years in the history and philosophy of, of biology. Um, you published over 50 books, and I have no, no idea how many academic and popular articles. <laughs> um, so obviously you've got so much experience, and, and, I, um, and I can see a little bit of criticism or, or remarks online. I'm sure that, that comes with the job. Um, and, and I just yeah. want, I wanted to ask you about, about your experiences first, just to start from a big picture. Okay, start with the big picture then. Um, I... Um, I'm just pouring my coffee. There we go. I'm obviously, as you can tell from my accent, I'm, I'm born in England, but I went to Canada when I was very, when I was young, about 22. And I've lived, I lived for the first 40 years in Canada and then the last 20 years in the US. And I moved to the US simply because I'd, I was not facing compulsory retirement. And I married, well, I always married my students, uh, but uh, <laughs> this one was particularly young. And so I found myself at 60 with uh, pre-teenagers and the thought of retiring with three teenagers was not attractive. So when I was offered a job down here in Florida, uh, I jumped at it and took it. So um, that's my background. Uh, I was, I grew up in England in the 1950s and like any, you know, I'm not showing off any reasonably bright child, I passed the 11 plus, I wanted to be a rocket scientist like everybody else. In other words, we all wanted to do physics and that's uh, uh, physics and math. And that's what I got into at university. And I think I discovered on my second day at university, I was a good high school mathematician, but I wasn't a university mathematician. <laughs> well, yeah. you know, I managed to get one way or another uh, I managed to get into philosophy as well, uh, mainly because I got O-level Latin. And uh, I ended up as a philosopher in North America. And when it came to dissertation time, or what, you, what the English called thesis, uh, when it came to thesis time, I wanted to work on philosophy of science. Now, anybody who's doing a dissertation or a thesis will tell you that what you want is an area where it's an interesting area, but more important, there should be some, uh, some material all, already in the field, but it shouldn't be very good. In other words, <laughs> what you want is something where you can make your own name, but you can make your own name mainly by bashing those who are already there. Well, as I say, in the 50s, not only did one do science, but one did maths and physics and our chemistry. And I hate to say this, but biology was a subject for girls and for late developers, as they used to call them. <laughs> oh, they were thick as shit. I mean, it's hard <laughs> to imagine in those days that be, being a doctor or, was considered rather low class. It was for people who couldn't handle concepts. Of course, in the 60s and 70s, suddenly becoming a doctor became all important. But I tell you not, I kid you not, in the 50s, it was, it was a B-level job. Uh, so I'd never done any biology, but uh, I, I was told, I realized that doing biology, doing philosophy of biology uh, might be a good thing because nobody had really done any. And biology, of course, by this time was starting its 
you know, rapid upward rise. The, you know, the double helix had been, what, 1953, and that had made, started to make big inroads. So by the, the 1960s, there was a lot of molecular biology, and also evolutionary biology has started to pull itself together in a big way. And so I got into this field in the late 60s, and uh, I wrote my dissertation, my thesis on the philosophy of biology. I should say also uh, that the 1962 was the date of Thomas Kuhn's The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. Yeah. Where Kuhn had this tremendous effect of saying, if you want to do philosophy of science seriously, you've got to do history of science seriously as well. I mean, all philosophers criticize Kuhn, uh, but we, I think a lot of us took very seriously his methodological prescriptions. And so I, at the same time, I got very interested in Darwin. I spent my first sabbatical at the University of Cambridge working on history of science. So uh, come the late, late uh, let's say the late 70s, I was a philosopher of biology, but I was also I, making my name, I was also working hard to be a, a historian of biology, not particularly of physiology, but of evolutionary theory, which of course was, you know, conceptually very interesting. Mm -hmm. Now, I think it's fair to say that around about 1980, one a little before, perhaps one a little after, two things happened to me. One was that Edward O. Wilson had published his big book, Sociobiology, the new synthesis in 19, uh, 1975, where he not only argued that animal social behavior is controlled by biology, but he included humans too. And of course, coming from England, that was no great surprise to me. People, you know, if you watch the Brain Trust in the 1950s, where you had people like J.B.S. Haldane and uh, Julian Huxley, for instance, the, you know, the grandson of Thomas Henry Huxley, the older brother of Aldous Huxley. I mean, they all said, you know, you've got to be careful about racism. But of course, humans are animals. And of course, biology made a difference. And obviously, something like sex is very much bound up with uh, very much bound up with, you know, different biological strategies. So uh, somewhat naively, well, very naively, I assumed that this was, was okay. So when I read sociobiology, I thought this is terrific stuff. And, you know, as always, if I think something terrific, I write a book about it. You know, the big joke is I don't have time to write an article, so I write a book. And, <laughs> you know, that's not entirely untrue. Mm. I mean, they say it to the Germans, don't they? He didn't have time to write a sentence, so he wrote a paragraph, uh, although German sentences are paragraph length anyway. <laughs> so I wrote a book on sociobiology, and boy, did I ever get a big surprise, because American intellectuals, first of all, they, you know, a lot of them were left-wing, so they didn't like biologizing humans. And of course, the other thing is, and I think it's absolutely fair to say, a lot of them were, were Jewish, and of course, they, the, the Holocaust was, was there in a big way. And of course, you've got to remember the 1960s uh, were when Holocaust studies started to become a very big thing, thanks to the uh, 1967 war. And, you know, a lot of people were looking down on Israel. So uh, Holocaust studies were pumped up to make us feel badly if we criticized Israel. And so by the 70s, uh, the, the very idea that humans might have a biological substrata was, you know, was very much out of fashion in a lot of high powered uh, philosophy departments and biology departments. So that was the first thing that happened to me. I got myself bound up in a hell of a row about that one. Uh, the other thing which happened was that it was the late 70s when the creationists started to make big inroads and they started to uh, push the idea that creationism or what they call creation science should be taught in, in publicly funded schools in America uh, alongside evolution. Now, you've got to remember that this is a particularly American phenomenon because, for instance, in Canada, there were and still are publicly funded religious schools. I mean, Ontario, for instance, has a full Catholic system, which is state supported. I mean, doesn't mean they teach evolution, but I'm damn sure they teach anti-abortion, for instance, and the state supports them. So, it was, but it's a very American phenomenon, this separation of church and state. I mean, it's funny that Americans have this in their constitution, as it were, but they're the most egregious sinners when it comes to this. I mean, it, 
in, in Canada, by and large, these are not issues. I mean, you know, religious people you know, are basically on, on the side with most of the things like non-religious people. So it's not a thing. But in America, where they supposedly separate it, as you know, it's mm. one hell of a controversy. And we, we've still got it going on about abortion, about global warming, and all of these sorts of things uh, yeah. you know, at, at the moment. So I, I, the funny thing was, then, on the one side, I was, was, was a force for light because I went down to Arkansas and appeared as a, an expert witness uh, for the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, against creation science. And we were great triumph. And I was alongside people like Stephen Jay Gould. On the other hand, I was a sociobiologist, a human sociobiologist. So people weren't entirely sure what to make of me. I mean, I think that's one thing I've always been glad of, but certainly in Canada, I was at a good university, but not a prestigious university. So I never felt any pressures to be, you know, part of the system or, you know, oh my God, you're letting the side down. But by and large, my colleagues said, well, Mike, if you want to do that, that's your business. Uh, and we won't make you sit on library, uh, on library committees. But if there are committees like the Presidential Search Committee, we expect you to do that. And, you know, it was a very happy arrangement. But, but as I say, by being at a non-prestigious university, I didn't feel any massive, uh, what shall I say, obligations to stay on the side with, you know, the best rules of the profession. In other words, you know, the, the uh, sort of, you know, the blandest, non, you know, controversial aspects of the profession. So that was basically where I was. But as I say, I was also very much interested in the history of science. And I, I don't think I did it in order to back out of the controversies. But by this time, my interest in the history of science were developing quite a bit. And there was a, a, a big controversy in the history of science over so-called social constructivism, whether or not science tells it as it is, mm. or whether or not science is just purely a function of culture. Well, obviously, it's both. And obviously, if you look at Darwin's theory, it, it's both. I mean, clearly, uh, I mean, the very search for origins is a Judeo-Christian thing. I mean, the, the Greeks didn't search for origins in those sorts of ways. Both Plato and Aristotle assumed that the, and, and the atomists assumed that the earth is, you know, the world is eternal and it, it always was and always will be. Whereas, of course, Judeo-Christianity has a start and a development. And I, I don't think there's any doubt that evolutionists picked up on that. And the reason why evolution focused on origins and why evolutionists are so torn up about humans is because mm. Judeo-Christianity focuses on origins and of course Judeo-Christianity is also very torn up about humans and what our status is and why we're sinners and all of those sorts of things. So this was the work I did very much in the 50s and I wrote a big book on the history of biology, uh, looking at the concept of progress, trying to tease out some of these issues. But, you know, at the same time, I was a philosopher. I was teaching philosophy. I mean, that's what, that's what I've always done in class. And I, I've taught a lot of philosophy in my time. And so by the 1960s, I think the science-religion uh, relationship was starting to develop in a big way. I mean, I don't think it was just the Templeton people, Sir John Templeton, pouring a lot of money into it, but it didn't hurt. But certainly by the 1960s, the whole issue of science and religion, not just creationism and religion and, and science, but science generally. And, and of course, this was the time when you got the new atheists built, springing up, people like Steve Gould and uh, what's his name, Harris, uh, uh, Sam Harris, and yes. uh, Dan Dennett, and, and these other, Christopher Hitchin, the new atheists. And so I got very interested in this whole thing. I managed to blot my copybook with the new atheists, but I, I seem to have a habit of doing that. Uh, so, you know, there was I, probably friendlier with the creationists than I was with the new atheists. Although, <laughs> um, I mean, I've never been an atheist, but I've always been, I, since I was 20, I've been an agnostic. And I guess, you know, to bring a long story, not very short, I mean, this comes back to where I am now. I was, as a child, I was raised as a Quaker, about the age of 20, I lost my faith. But I thought at 20, by the time I'm 70, I'm going to get back on side. I mean, you know, you can't afford to make big mistakes when you're 70. You know, Pascal's wager, better to believe even if there's nothing. Because if there is something and you don't believe, then you really truly are, to use a philosophical term, fucked. <laughs> you know, 
So uh, basically, I thought I'd get on side when I was 70. But unbelievably, to my surprise, I found that at 70, I was as happy, more happy with being a non-believer than I'd ever been before in my life. That I wasn't against religion as such, but I just couldn't accept it. But, uh, and, uh, but at the same time, I didn't think of myself as an atheist. I think of myself as still in inquiring. And I guess this is where I brought myself to today. Somewhat pretentiously, I refer to myself now as a Darwinian existentialist. And I, mm. I, I, I draw very much on Sartre's little book, Ex Existentialism and Humanism, where he says, although he's an atheistic existentialist, for him, the existence of God is not important. What's important is that we make the decision that we're free to choose. And I think that's where I find myself at the moment. It, I mean, I, I, I'm very interested in the existence of God. I wouldn't say it's not important. But I think very much the philosophy that I've, I've tried to develop, and I wrote a little book called Meaning, uh, A Meaning to Life, uh, which is very much predicated on the idea that it really doesn't, that the God thing is, is not where we should be worrying. We shouldn't be spending our time trying to make, you know, earn brownie points to get into heaven, mm -hmm. uh, nor should we be spending our time worrying that God is going to be like my late head master who took one look at me and decided he didn't like me. And that's, you know, <laughs> and that was a judgment for the ages. Mark you, I wasn't much more fond of him either. But, you know, I've always had this vision of God as a bit like my headmaster. I joke that having had one headmaster in this world, I'm damned if I want another one in the next. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, uh, I find that, I, I, I wouldn't say peace of mind, because peace of mind sounds as though you're a vegetable. And I, I would like to think that I'm not a vegetable. Uh, but that uh, it, it certainly brings me a sense of purpose, a sense of a, a, a sense of, of, of a properness in some sort of way. Of integ Let's use the word integrity, that I don't have belief. Uh, I don't think the belief is where it's at. But I do feel very strongly that we're not put on this earth just to have a good time. If you like, I take the parable of the talents very seriously. And when I die, I'm going to say to my non-existent God, well, God, you gave me talents and I think I've used them. And I feel very strongly that. I mean, uh, that I don't think we're put on this earth just to have a good time. I think we're put on this earth to relate to other human beings and to try to, some of us, to try to be creative. I mean, some people, I was just reading a book about Wagner. Obviously, Wagner was a great creative artist, but as a human being, he was an absolute shithead. I mean, he really was an appalling human being. But, you know, I mean, so and other people are, are really great human beings. Let's say, uh, well, let's say somebody like Sophie Scholl, who gave her life, uh, who was executed in the middle of the Second World War for handing out pamphlets against Hitler. I'm not sure that she did anything particularly creative in the arts or anything like that, but obviously she was a great moral being. So I, I don't think you have to be one or the other and both, uh, but I think that it's, it's not a bad thing, particularly if you're somebody like me, who is an intellectual and a teacher and these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. If at some level, I mean, my teaching, where I try to give to others, uh, my intellectual uh, work, where I... You know, I try to explore ideas and things of that kind. And as I say, that, I really don't want to sound as though I'm complacent because I'm not. I mean, that's the, in a way, that's the last thing that I am or want to be. But I do, and I say peace of mind. I want to say peace of mind doesn't mean being like a, like a vegetable. Now I don't want, you know, I've had a lobotomy. I, now I'm no longer worrying. <laughs> um, that's not where I'm at. But I do feel that, I am now at a point where I'm in a pretty good place, as it were. I mean, obviously, at, at 79, you know, what have I got another five years? What, you, you tell me. Uh, uh, and I don't particularly want to die. But when I do die, I won't go out saying, oh, my God, I haven't done everything I should have done. Let me have another, you know, let me try again. I, I, I don't want to sound as though I'm complacent about this. Mm -hmm. But I, I do feel very much that, and of course, this is the biologist side of what I'm saying, is that I think life is almost like a work of art. You, you grow, you have maturity, and then it draws to an end. 
And I think that what one tries to do is do it with dignity throughout. How's that? Thank you very much. <laughs> that was incredible. Yeah. Let me just one thing. Let me just show you the book I've written. Hold on. Yes. And this is, in fact, the book. No, there we are. That's the book I've just written, A, a Meaning to Life, which is precisely where I try to express these things. And here comes, this is Scrappy McGrath, <laughs> and he feels that any, any discussion involving me and the meaning of life must necessarily involve him. Have Absolutely. You, that's, have I got, have I plugged in? Yeah. That's not entirely a joke because I do feel it's not just a question of relating to humans, but I think it's, it's a question of relating to life generally. My wife's a big gardener. I'm not much of a gardener. So I, you know, I don't relate that strongly uh, to the, the plants in which well, I love them. But I mean, I think if you don't have a feeling for animals at some sort of level, you're, you're missing something. Now that's the, you know, that's the Englishman in me, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> but uh, there you go. Off you go, Scrappy. You've made your appearance. <laughs> okay, so there you go. Well, you've, you've mentioned quite a few points there. And if it's okay, oh, if I'm you've not got... getting you. Hold on. I'm not getting the sound from you. Oh, how about now? Oh, it's on mute. Ah. Mute. Are you there? Yes, I'm here. Can you hear me now? Uh, why am I not getting sound? Oh, I'm not sure. Um, possibly something in I the... I just tried to see... I can hear I... you. Hold on. Let me press that. Oh, there we are. Yes, Say again. That... Can you hear me now? No, I still... For some reason, I, I can't oh. hear you. Well, um... I can see you. Yes. Okay, let me see. I, I, I'm, not on mute, I'm not on mute, and I can see that it's going up and down, but some, for some reason, you're not coming in. It says mute. Check the bottom left. Okay. Bottom left says mute. Uh, let me try this. What's this? Select a microphone, select a speaker. Yeah, well, I, um. Same as system, microphone. Test speaker and microphone. Switch to phone audio. Leave computer audio. Oh, I see. Well, let me try this then. Let me try speaker. Uh, yes, have, I'll keep talking just to see if you can hear me. Um, maybe. Can hear you. You can hear me now. Yeah. If I if I unplug for some reason, I could hear you now. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm not sure. Well, if you can hear me, I, I think I can hear you well enough. I, okay, great. And I, and I can hear you very well. Okay. Um, okay, so thank you. you. You mentioned a lot of points there, and I would like to pick up on all of them, but I, I don't want to take too much of your time. So okay, maybe, cool. maybe I'll just pick up on a few. Um, I understand, you know, you're, you're interested in the question of creationism versus evolution, the relationship between science and religion, and also uh, the, de de the demarcation problem, you know, between where does science end and begin in, in various different fields. So I just wanted to give you, I don't normally do this, but because of your experience, I'd, I'd quite like to just present my perspective um, as, as a biologist and as a, as a um, uh, Bhagavad Vedantist. So um, it's a tradition coming out of India. We, we study the Bhagavad Gita and we believe in it. It's a monotheistic tradition. And, and I just wanted to, to see, to ask how you think that could fit in, whether within science or not, because I'm, I'm, it's, a, it's a question I grapple with, actually, and I'd like to, to know what's appropriate. So to, the, the idea is, is that from the Bhagavad Gita is that basically we are bodies are machines. And it's actually that the word is yantra. So the body is a machine. And the purpose of a body is to be able to allow the, the actual living entity, the atma or, or jiva, the, the eternal soul, if you want to call it, I don't like using the word soul, um, to be able to experience through <coughs> senses. Um, and so different bodies have different senses and different experiences, therefore. Um, and really the, 
the the atma the eternal being is full of knowledge bliss and eternity but it's coming filtered through a certain body ultimately which consists of the body and the mind so there are three things body mind and the experiencer the atma the, the actual entity and that transmigrates through different vehicles different bodies depending on desires and karma so the analogy is that it's like a virtual reality machine the body so i'm i'm when i'm in it i'm in the avatar i think i'm it but actually it's not really the case. So it comes down to a question of consciousness. And so um, the ex we experience a qualitative reality rather than obviously what we necessarily get in the brain. So I wanted to ask you, how, how do you understand and deal with that question of consciousness? Yeah. From your well, you've hit, I mean, you're, you're very astute because you've hit very much on an issue which um, I've thought about a lot, but particularly recently. I mean, I should say I'm not a philosopher who works on body-mind, so okay. to a certain extent, most of my life I've shelved it, saying, you know, this is not my issue, like free will, it's an important issue, but, you know, we all, the cobbler should stick to his last, we all have our jobs to do, and yes. free will and consciousness are not mine, but I have to say, as I've grown older, and as I've started to wrestle with the science-religion relationship, uh, that, that I have to say that consciousness and free will have come much more into my vision, as it were. And I, I think I would want to say the following is that uh, I feel that there are certain questions which I look upon as genuine questions. I don't think, you know, in a Wittgensteinian way that they're pseudo questions, mm -hmm. which I'm just not sure that science can answer. Okay. Uh, for instance, I would want to say, why is there something rather than nothing? is a question which is outside science. I think it's a genuine question. Wittgenstein said it's not a genuine question. That's, I just think it is a genuine question. But obviously, the Big Bang is not the answer that we're looking for. What we're looking for is why the hell is there something <laughs> rather than nothing? And I, I mean, the point is that science is a bit like, you know, the cookbook, first take your hair. And I think that's the way that, I mean, that's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, Kuhn told us this. The whole thing about paradigms is that they put blinkers on you so you don't waste time thinking about other things. I mean, if I say my love is a red, red rose, you know, you know, she's beautiful. You know that she's fresh. If you're joking, you might say she's a bit prickly because that's what <laughs> roses are. But you sure as hell don't know if she's any good at mathematics. Uh, you don't know if she's black or white or anything like that. I mean, you know, why not? It, they're genuine questions. Is my love Caucasian, Asiatic, or, you know, is, is she African? I mean, they're genuine questions, but they're not questions that you ask using the metaphor, my love is like a red, red rose. I mean, you know, you might want to say, well, if she's black as, you know, totally black, she's probably not a red, red rose, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Certainly, um, that's not what you're talking about. I mean, I, a beautiful black woman can be, my love is like a red, red rose. Of course she can be. I mean, any more than a white person is red, they're not. So, um, but the point is, I think you put blinkers on. I think this is the way that science works, that there are some questions that um, simply science doesn't ask or answer. And it's just as well, because science, you know, cobbler stick to your last, science has got its own jobs to do. So that's one. Um, I think morality is another. I mean, science doesn't tell you about the foundations of morality. I mean, because I'm, I'm a human, I draw a distinction between is and ought. And I think science tells it like it is, rather than like it should be. In other okay. words, you know, I mean, is global warming a good thing? Well, science can tell me about whether or not there is global warming. But whether or not you should worry about global warming, I think is a different matter. I mean, you've got to use the science. But is, science, is global warming a bad thing? And, you know, in Canada, it always used to be the joke that Canada was the one country that was, was welcoming global warming. It turns out <laughs> that's not true because it allows a lot of uh, parasites which it didn't have before, and they're really troublesome. But you know what I mean. As, and I'm inclined to think that, I mean, I think another question is, what, you know, what is the meaning of it all? I mean, you know, is it Steve Weinberg says, the more I study nature, the less I can see any purpose to it. Well, I'm not surprised because I don't think he's asking, you know, he's, he's doing something which has purposes. I think the point of science is, 
you know, does it work according to unbroken law? So this is why I'm perfectly happy with talking about humans as machines. I mean, at that level, I think that that's what science has to do, yes. show how humans function as machines. And if you're not doing that, you're not doing good science. And I'm inclined to think more and more that consciousness might be another of these issues like that. I mean, you know, you start to think of what the, the various options are. And if you take some position like Dan Dennett of some kind of materialism, who says that once you've described the brain, you've done everything you could do, you've described the mind. Well, that's just not true. That's just not true. I mean, you can say how the brain is working. You can certainly say the brain, and from the brain, you might be able to infer what people are thinking, mm -hmm. because they're, they're obviously linked. Yes, but the yeah. point is, if you, as Leibniz said, if you look at the brain, you're looking in the inter, inside of a mill. You're not looking at the mind. You're looking at the, at the workings of a mill. And I think that that's true. So more and more, I'm inclined to think that probably consciousness is one of those things. Now, does that, I mean, what, okay, but don't give up there. You know, turn to philosophy if, or turn to religion. Uh, what, where do you go from there? And I think a lot of, it's interesting, I think, when I, when I was much younger, some kind of panpsychism, you know, panpsychic monism, the idea that everything is both mind and body at the same time, I think was, in a way, it was almost regarded as, you know, not just wrong, but kind of silly with a bad smell, as it were. Whereas yes. I, I find now that increasingly, you know, serious philosophers are starting to say, well, there's something to this. And of course, you know, mysterious things like quantum entanglement, where you can have, you know, you can do something to a molecule at one end of the universe and know that you're going to get a immediately a corresponding thing at the other end of the universe. I think shows as JBS Holday, remember I, I talked about him earlier, said, you know, not only is the world queerer than I think it is, it's probably queerer than I could think it is. <laughs> and I, I think more and more, I'm inclined to think that way. So in other words, so to come back as it were, back to the kind of questions you're asking. I mean, I'm perfectly happy with talking about humans as machines. I don't, you know, I think if I couldn't do that, then there's something wrong with me as a scientist. But do I want to talk about humans as in some sense, not necessarily uh, having a soul, certainly not a soul in, the, uh, in the, the Christian sense, perhaps more as Quakers used to say, that of God in every person, that there's something about us which is, you know, it, it maybe it's all part of, I think it's part of the same package deal, but it's more than just molecules in motion. Uh, I'd be very inclined, I'm very comfortable with thinking that. Now, whether you want to say, okay, but does this mean that every mind, your mind, my mind, is all part of some universal mind, you know, think this mind all something is part of the universal mind, no less, you know, the Rupert Brooke poem. Um, <clears throat> I think that's another matter. I mean, absolutely. I mean, obviously, at some level, we're all part of the material world, aren't we? And if, for instance, I die and I'm cremated and you cast my ashes into the sea or whatever it is, well, the molecules are still there, whether they're, you know, smoke molecules in the atmosphere or whether they're, you know, bits of sand or grit on the bottom of the ocean floor. So mm. at some level, you know, we're all part of the, the, that overall thing. Does this mean our minds, therefore, at some level, are all part of the overall thing? Would it mean that if we've got multiverses, that a physical body like mine could be recreated? Does this mind, my mind could come back almost like in a Buddhist way? Well, you know, it, 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 you're getting out of my pay scale there. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, 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 I think, you know, I, of course, you think about these things. You wonder, I mean, when I die, is it right that Bertrand Russell said, I rot, and that's it? Well, I mean, I think as like as not, that's probably what's going to happen. I mean, I think I came from nothing, and I have no reason to think that I won't go to nothing. And in that, in the, in, in, at least in the, one sense, I think Camus is right that it's absurd. It, 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 in some overall eschatological way, it's meaningless. I think you can find meaning in your own lives. Uh, but uh, is that the case? Or is it the case that, as Haldane said, it's not only queerer than we know, but it's queerer than we could know? I think that's, I think that's a, a very interesting prospect. Does it mean, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, Buddhism in a, a crude way, 
surely can't be right. I mean, I can't be the incarnation of Queen Victoria. <laughs> I mean, you know, both Queen Victoria and I love dogs, but her idea of a holiday was to go to the, you know, that awful place in the north where it's always raining, where it's filled with hairy tights in skirts who are playing instruments that should have been throttled at, at birth. I'm talking, as you know, about Balmoral. <laughs> I mean, the last, the thought of spending my my summer holidays at Balmoral, you know, <laughs> I mean, I'd rather have, you know, I'd rather, you know, be a, 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 a demonstrator at a medical school and show for a month how colonoscopies are done <laughs> rather than spend my time <laughs> in, in, in Balmoral. And that's not because, please understand, that's not because I like uh, colonoscopies that I've got <laughs> some sort of urge to have. No, but the, the, what I'm trying to say is, you know, you really these kind of things I really don't want. And, <laughs> but as I say, so I just don't know what it would mean to say. I, and I've all, you know, the trouble is when people talk about, you know, somebody is the, you know, a previous incarnation, they were King Toot or some, uh, you know, a slave girl in, in the, you know, at the, the court of Caesar or something, you know, so often these things are kind of a bit morally smelly, aren't they? Mm. You know, people with these sort of views, making money out of gullible people and that sort of thing. And uh, I, I distrust all of that very much, but whether or not at some level, not necessarily an eternal mind, but that at some level there is some overall mind. Well, I, how can I say not? I do think one thing, and you, it's interesting that you've talked about Eastern religions, and I, because I think of Buddhism here. I mean, the interesting thing about Buddhism compared to the Abrahamic religions is that the Buddhists have gods, levels of gods, but they don't have an overall creator god who is a force for good. And uh, I have to say, that's one of the problems. My speculations have not led me to say in some way, I see some teleological drive towards things getting better. Although, of course, Buddhists think that they will. I mean, they talk about Nirvana and that sort of thing. But, you know, in an age which, a century which saw the Holocaust, which saw you know, the things which went on in uh, Stalin's, uh, you know, terrible famines at the beginning of the 1930s, the things that the communists and others did in the East, I mean, it's difficult, I think, to say at some level we see some overall force for good. Perhaps we do. But, you know, in an age where my country has Donald Trump and yours has Boris Johnson, <laughs> you know, it's not easy to see, you know, some overall progress. <laughs> Thank you. I really appreciate that, Michael, because I, it's, it's something I've been wondering for some time. Um, you know, obviously, the, the tradition that I'm I'm interested in is is different to Buddhism in the sense that um, there is an actual person who incarnates. There's the same person who keeps incarnating, um, but just in different filters, through different bodies, different filters. Yeah. And maybe you know um, the mind has the mind's a separate thing, so different impressions come, and so you know I might not necessarily mm -hmm. know who I was in the last life and all this kind of stuff. But I, I've been I've been wondering to myself, how, how does this fit with science? So for example, I, I'll, give, I'll give you an example of, uh, I gave you the example of a, a virtual reality machine mm. earlier. So we're using the body to, or using the avatar to experience, and it could be an animal, an ant, a human, whatever. Yeah. Another example is the driverless car. So I'm not in control of the car, but I do have volition. If it's yeah. very, I don't particularly like that. And I may or may not be able to override it depending on, I don't know, certain things. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, so, so in a, in a similar way, I'm just wondering if the, if the, if the car is the body and the, and the, 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 the kind of passenger driver is, is, is the, the actual entity, I'm just wondering, is there a way for it to interface with the body? Um, and if, if so, isn't that very important in science in the sense that the consciousness could actually affect biology? It could actually be a fundamental player in terms of affecting biology. It's just something I've wondered, and I'm not sure if it's- I, I, I don't see any clash with what I've said so far. Okay. I think obviously consciousness, however you analyze free will, and I probably do it in a human way, I'd argue that the contrast is not between free will and determinism, but between free will and constraint. So I've never really had any problems with free will as such. 
Okay. And I, it always seemed to me when people say there's no such thing as free will, well, that's just that's just silly because obviously there is free will. Um, you know, it's like the the more thing. I mean, is this a hand before me? Yes, it is. And you know, no amount of skeptical argumentation is going to show me that there isn't a hand there. Yeah. So you know, I, I certainly believe in free will. And I, I mean, I would be very surprised if consciousness were not at some level involved in free will. I mean, otherwise, why be conscious? Um, so obviously, consciousness is is involved in free will. I mean, I, you know, I make a conscious decision. Let's say uh, I want to make a point here. So what I do is I do this to you. You know, just to sort of, you know, <laughs> that's what I think about. Obviously, the piece back. I mean, yeah, all right, victory instead. <laughs> but obviously, this is a conscious decision that I've made to do this rather than, you know, just a fist like that. So I, I don't see how consciousness couldn't be involved. doesn't mean to say I can understand or explain consciousness. And I think that's, you know, I think that's the interesting thing. Somebody like, I take it, Dan Dennett would say, well, we know enough about the, the causal world to be able to say that if, in fact, these molecules do this in the brain, then you're going to do this. And if the molecules do something else in the brain, you're going to do this. And if the molecules do something else in the brain, you're going to do this. I mean, okay. uh, and I, I'm quite happy with that. But it, it doesn't seem to me to explain why I did this, or why I did this, why I did this, why I did this. I mean, obviously, at some level, consciousness is involved in it. And um, so I've got no problem about that any more than I've ever had any problem about free will. And in fact, that, of course, is where I want to say that humans are different. I mean, I mean, I think my dogs do have free will at a certain level. Obviously, they do. They can they can make decisions about whether or not they want, you know, whether they want to do this or whether they want to do that or something like that. I mean, there's no question about that. But, you know, the dogs late at night, you know, want to get up on the bed. Well, I don't, I mean, I, I don't see why they're not exercising their free will by wanting to get up on the bed as opposed to uh, lying, um, you know, just lying on the, on, the, on the couch or something. I mean, why not talk about free will? They decided they, they, they would rather be on the bed than in their dog bed on the floor. Well, what's the difference between that and me saying, I'd rather sleep in the bed, even though there are issues with it, than on the sofa covered by a rug. I mean, I could say, well, you know, the sofa, the, the bedroom is by noisy a road and I can't sleep as well. The sofa isn't. But nevertheless, I find the bed so much more comfortable, quite apart from the fact that my naked wife is there. Uh, so, <laughs> you know... Uh, I, I mean, that's, I think that's a decision I make, and I don't see why my dog's saying I'd rather be up, you know, snuggling down at the bottom of the bed than uh, on, on, the, um, on the sofa or on, um, in the dog bed. Um, it seems to me perfectly okay to, to say that. So, but I do think certainly humans are the things which have free will. This is, you know, this, as it were, takes us back to my Darwinian existentialism pretentious mm -hmm in a phrase, is that I do think we're free beings. And I do think, I don't believe it's Sartre that we have to create everything for nothing. But I don't think Sartre thought that. I mean, obviously, Sartre wasn't creating everything for nothing. He was a Frenchman, had certain French characteristics, you know, he liked to, I mean, he liked to smoke and drink, and he, he liked to sit on, you know, in cafes, and, you know, he liked to, you know, he liked to screw women to whom he was not married, and, uh, and he liked to talk nonstop in a brilliant Cartesian sort of way. So, but what he did with this, as it were, I think was very much his own choice, that he's trying to articulate a vision or something like that. And that's where I, I give Sartre credit. And that's where I want to say, yes, he did, as it were, at some level, try to create in his own right, rather than because God made him or because he was scared of God or something, or he thought it would get him into heaven. He did it because it was important to him as a human being. And I, you know, that's what I mean by my form of existentialism. That's yeah. why I feel very strongly about it. And uh, but as I say, I think the great thing is, it's not anti-religious. It, it's, it's not anti-religious. I'm not anti-religious at all. But I think even religious people at some level ought to be Christian existentialists. Say, yeah, I believe in God. I worship God. I hope I satisfy God. But I mustn't do what I'm doing in order 
just to please God. I ought to do it because Sophie Scholl did not go to the guillotine to please God. She did it because it was morally right to stand up against Hitler, even though she knew it would lead to her death. And that surely is what makes Sophie, Moll, Sophie Scholl incredibly an object of admiration, that she did this, not because she said, oh, well, if I do this, I'm gonna to go to heaven, I'm definitely going to heaven. Whereas if I don't do this, it's up for grabs. And if she did that, then I think all of us would be inclined to say, well, you know, you're deluded and you won't do anything which is great moral value. But the fact that you did it because you thought it, as a human being, it was morally right, and that obviously this involves other humans, that you were trying to influence other humans, in, then I, obviously this is what makes her admirable. So as I yeah. say, if I were a Christian, I'd be very much a Christian existentialist. Thank you. That's, I, I really appreciate that, because what, the essence of what I took there is that when we do something, if we're really doing it for the... For, for the for the correct reason it's because we're doing it out of love so whether that's because yeah. we're showing love to god or we're showing love to fellow humans you yeah. in a sense it's 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 not that we're trying to get a result it's not the result of getting to heaven or getting I mean, look, Brian, it's like this i don't know enough about you to know whether or not you're doing this because you're hoping to get a good job with the bbc or whether you're doing no. it <laughs> which is important to you but you know what the difference is i mean i don't think you can't do both i mean I don't think there's any reason why you should say, oh, well, I want to get into the BBC. So everything I'm going to do has no moral value whatsoever. So what the hell I should, you know, I don't think that, I don't think the world works that way. Hmm. But I do feel that the reason why you and I, why I'm prepared to talk to you, why you're talking to me is because at some level, we're both finding this personally fulfilling and satisfying. Does that make sense? Yes, you get, I mean, I do hope you get a job with the BBC and I hope <laughs> they make a lot of money, but you know what I mean. I don't think we're doing this because you want to get a job with the BBC. Yes, it's that, I, I hear what you're saying. It's, it's, the, it's the balance. The balance yeah. of the, in, the intention is, is the thing. And then obviously we have certain desires. Mm. That's okay. But I understand, I mean, my understanding is the intention is the real primal. Right. And I mean, let's face up to it. We all get pissed off with the genius who says, I'm a genius, I don't have to work, you have to support me. I mean, I think all of us would be inclined to say, well, maybe if you were Mozart, but even Mozart worked damned hard and tried to, you know. So, uh, I, I mean, I don't think it's, I mean, it's obviously not one or the other, but not both. I think we've all, as human beings, got, I mean, it's like you get married. I mean, if you're a genius, probably you're going to make more demands on your family than otherwise. I mean, if you, but at the same time, it doesn't mean to say you can just cut off your family or just use them as tools. Yes. Yeah, very good point. <laughs> so thank you for joining me on this Chasing Reality podcast with our guests, Professor Michael Roos. I had a really enlivening discussion and uh, he made me laugh a lot. He's, he's, um, he's got a fine sense of humour. And uh, yeah, he did mention to me at the end that um, hopefully in the future we can talk some more. So I'm, I'm hopeful that we're going to have another podcast entry with him where I can ask more informed questions after I read some of his books. So what did I take away? Well, there are many things we talked about. We talked about the question of religion and science. It's something I'm particularly interested in, as I mentioned to him, and for the first time, I really kind of expressed my um, sort of some ideas about my metaphysical foundations from the Bhagavad Vedanta um, tradition, which primarily is based on the Bhagavad Gita and similar scriptures that describe that the body, the body and, and the mind are a vehicle through which the atma or the actual living entity the conscious being can experience um conditioned nature conditioned material nature so for example i'm experiencing through um a semi-irish fairly pale human body with a certain mind in this life and uh different bodies have different senses and serve for different experiences. For example, a dog, a cat, an ant, a bacteria. 
So the Bhagavad Gita describes that bodies are yantras or, or machines, vehicles through which consciousness can experience. But there is a conscious person who is experiencing, and it's not that they are the body. So I expressed this, this idea, and I felt like I could with Michael because he's very open. Like I said at the, in the introduction, he seems to be really striving to, to, to discover or to, to enjoy this um, finding this balance between metaphysics and physics. And I say that because I see that he's always involved in um, the debates between religion and science. And sometimes he gets called a, you know, he's a whole he's a religionist, a creationist lover. And other times, um, you know, he, he's, he's, he's seen as an evolutionist. Now, why is that? It's because he's not so quick to jump on sides. As he said, um, sorry, as Aristotle said, something along the lines of the, the sign of an educated um, mind is the capacity to entertain an idea without necessarily accepting it. Now I'm paraphrasing what he said. Um, and I very much appreciate that and I felt comfortable to express my own beliefs. And he gave me some very interesting points regarding free will. He's not um, closed on that idea. He thinks that it's, it's reasonable. One thing I'd like to investigate further in my podcast and interviews with different scientists and philosophers is this idea that the consciousness, um, the question, can consciousness be investigated if consciousness is something that isn't the body, but maybe it's not entirely unrelated. So for example, if we say consciousness is the observer, the body is the observed, and there's a natural interaction between these two. Is it possible that consciousness affects biology? And if that's the case, it's, it would seem that it's very important to understand um, the functions and, and um, properties of consciousness, just like we understand and we're trying to understand the functions and properties of matter, you know, the spins of electrons and these kind of things. Uh, so can we model and understand consciousness in the same way? Is it possible to look at biology in, and, and study consciousness? I'm also interested in other questions in the future, such as, um, in my tradition, what, what are we? What are we? What would we lumped in as? From my understandings, there are the mechanists, the organicists, and the vitalists through history. There seem to be these three broad groups, and I'm sure when I speak to a, to another uh, historian, philosopher of science, they'll explain to me that there's there's many many nuances between those, and it's probably a gradation of you know throughout. So. I've got many questions and fortunately Michael said that I can speak to him again. So we're going to record another episode and I'm very much appreciative of his, um, his comments. And I'm hoping as time goes on, these podcasts are going to inform me more and more so that I can strike a really nice balance between my, uh, my, my kind of personal um, spiritual or metaphysical life and my scientific understanding of the world how do these two go together when does one cross the line where is the where is the boundary um it's an interesting question and i'll continue this this journey so thank you very much for listening very Krishna.